Chapter Forty Eight of Jenny Gerhardt by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lester had been doing some pretty hard thinking, but so far he had been unable to formulate any feasible plan for his reentrance into active life. The successful organization of Robert's Carriage Trade Trust had knocked in the head any further thought on his part of taking an interest in the small Indiana wagon manufactory. He could not be expected to sink his sense of pride and place and enter a petty campaign for business success with a man who was so obviously his financial superior. He had looked up the details of the combination, and he found that Bracebridge had barely indicated how wonderfully complete it was. There were millions in the combine. It would have every little manufacturer by the throat. Should he begin now in a small way and pike along in the shadow of his giant brother? He couldn't see it. It was too ignominious. He would be running around the country trying to fight a new trust, with his own brother as his tolerant rival and his own rightful capital arrayed against him. It couldn't be done. Better sit still for the time being. Something else might show up. If not, well, he had his independent income and the right to come back into the cane company if he wished. Did he wish? The question was always with him. It was while Lester was in this mood, drifting, that he received a visit from Samuel E. Ross, a real estate dealer whose great wooden signs might be seen everywhere on the windy stretches of prairie about the city. Lester had seen Ross once or twice at the Union Club, where he had been pointed out as a daring and successful real estate speculator, and he had noticed his rather conspicuous offices at LaSalle and Washington Streets. Ross was a magnetic-looking person of about fifty years of age, tall, black-bearded, black-eyed, an arched, wide, nostriled nose, and hair that curled naturally, almost electrically. Lester was impressed with his lithe, cat-like figure and his long, thin, impressive white hands. Mr. Ross had a real estate proposition to lay before Mr. Kane. Of course, Mr. Kane knew who he was, and Mr. Ross admitted fully that he knew all about Mr. Kane. Recently, in conjunction with Mr. Norman Yale, of the wholesale grocery firm of Yale, Simpson & Rice, he had developed Yalewood. Mr. Kane knew of that? Yes, Mr. Kane knew of that. Only within six weeks, the last lots in the Ridgewood section of Yalewood had been closed out at a total profit of 42%. He went over a list of other deals in real estate, which he had put through, all well-known properties. He admitted frankly that there were failures in the business. He had had one or two himself. But the successes far outnumbered the bad speculations, as everyone knew. Now Lester was no longer connected with the Kane Company. He was probably looking for a good investment, and Mr. Ross had a proposition to lay before him. Lester consented to listen. Mr. Ross blinked his cat-like eyes and started in. The idea was that he and Lester should enter into a one-deal partnership, covering the purchase and development of a forty-acre tract of land, lying between 55th, 71st, Halstead Streets, and Ashland Avenue, on the southwest side. 
There were indications of a genuine real estate boom there, healthy, natural, and permanent. The city was about to pave 55th Street. There was a plan to extend the Halstead Street car line far below its present terminus. The Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, which ran near there, would be glad to put a passenger station on the property. The initial cost of the land would be $40,000, which they would share equally. Grading, paving, lighting, tree planting, surveying would cost roughly an additional 25000 There would be expenses for advertising, say 10% of the total investment for two years, or perhaps three. A total of 19500 or $20,000. All told, they would stand to invest jointly the sum of 95000 or possibly $100,000, of which Lester's share would be 50000 Then Mr. Ross began to figure on the profits. The character of the land, its saleability, and the likelihood of a rise in value could be judged by the property adjacent, the sale that had been made north of 55th Street and east of Halstead. Take, for instance, the Mortimer plot at Halstead and 55th Street on the southeast corner. Here was a piece of land that in 1882 was held at $45 an acre. In 1886, it had risen to $500 an acre, as attested by its sale to a Mr. John L. Slosson at that time. In 1889, three years later, it had been sold to Mr. Mortimer for 100000 per acre, precisely the figure at which this track was now offered. It could be parceled out into lots 50 by 100 feet at $500 per lot. Was there any profit in that? Lester admitted that there was. Ross went on, somewhat boastfully, to explain just how real estate profits were made. It was useless for any outsider to rush into the game and imagine that he could do in a few weeks or years what trained real estate speculators like himself had been working on for a quarter of a century. There was something in prestige, something in taste, something in psychic apprehension. Supposing that they went into the deal, he, Ross, would be the presiding genius. He had a trained staff. He controlled giant contractors. He had friends in the tax office, in the water office, and in the various other city departments which made or marred city improvements. If Lester would come in with him, he would make him some money. How much? He would not say exactly. $50,000 at the lowest, 150 to 200,000 in all likelihood. Would Lester let him go into details and explain just how the scheme could be worked out? After a few days of quiet cogitation, Lester decided to accede to Mr. Ross's request. He would look into this thing. End of chapter 48